0: and efforts it's the atavistian time of the month so you know some spoilers ahead i think in this garage jam session
1: i don't know i mean i'm a, i'm never happy with what i write so <laughs> i would have yeah there would definitely be something i didn't like about and thought i'd done wrong and that's the main thing that i think maybe i did wrong
0: I oh, see an at CNF pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, it's a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. We've got Lily Hyde, born in the UK, living in Ukraine. She's a journalist and author of the novel Dreamland. In her piece for The Atavist, it's titled 2,000 Miles From Home. As Russia invaded Ukraine, three women from the same family became pregnant at the same time then the war tore them apart I dare you not to read it after reading that head and subhead we dig into how she connected with Ukraine how she got access to this family she writes about the one regret she had about the writing of the piece and the ethics of writing about people's lives when it feels like it's none of our fucking business. I feel this more and more day to day, like, who the fuck am I to invade your life and write about it? And when I'm making decisions about what gets put into print or whatever, I feel ickier and ickier about being a journalist almost every day and want to disappear from the face of the earth. But before we hear from Lily, we hang out with Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece, to talk about some of the unique challenges this story presented. You know, like why bother you we know, are wasting time anymore on the the housekeeping bullshit? You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Here's Jonah. Riff It was the I think it was Rilke who you know he wrote something like uh you know letters to a young writer or mm-hmm. something to that extent and you know a lot of times uh, even on this podcast we're always like trying to give advice to or just um you know pointers or little things to make writing better um but i want to like flip that on its head a little bit cuz you know you're on the editor side of the table and like if you had to write something of like letters to a young editor you know what uh-huh. might you say to a young editor you know, who, you know, just to, to, to work on that side of the craft.
2: And it, it's tough because, I mean, there's sort of, there are a couple of ways to answer that. I feel like the thing that's giving me pause is that I, I think it's very rare for editors to be in a position where, where they have a ton of time to actually edit, you know, because, yeah. because of the state of the business these days. So, that, that makes it more difficult because the, sh- the short answer is just spend time with the story, you know, sort of move through it as, as slowly as you can or as you need to printing stories out, which I, d- I don't do a ton anymore, but printing stories out, um, is a, is a nice way of slowing down. Um, you know, I, I think I've talked before on the, on this podcast about, uh, Alex Hurd's advice. He's an editor at Outside now, um, and he he always, when I was having trouble with a story, he would have me sit down and just write like one sentence summaries of each section to to show see how a story is unfolding, what flows to the next thing, and making sure that there's sort of a logic and a natural progression to the way a story is is structured. I mean the th- the thing that it took me a while to figure out was that like I needed to just trust my gut you know like if if which doesn't mean that like I always know the answer but I'm I'm at this point at least an experienced reader if not a good reader and and if something is not working or if I if I feel like something isn't working or that we're moving too fast or too slow here that that's probably right and I think young or at least when I was a young editor I I was working with far more experienced writers and I was worried they're like oh god they're gonna think I'm stupid or that I don't know what I'm doing which of course like that happens you know like that's fine (laughs) there's nothing to worry about um but I I sort of pulled my punches so to speak because I, I wanted to just kind of like keep the writer happy and, and tell them they were doing a great job and that's not always in service of the story you know certainly tell writers when you think something is really working they they love to hear that um, but but just listening to my own gut tell me this is right this isn't and then opening a conversation with the writer to to figure out why it isn't working.
0: Yeah, and that's, I think, the key part, but in, as you've mentioned before, it given that editors are just flooded with so much stuff, they can barely do more than copy edit half mm-hmm. the time, so there's often no time to have those conversations, but that's where you're in the f- a fortunate position of often having a lot of runway between publication and, uh, and drafting uh, of pieces where you can have that dialogue with people, where you might even be able to say, how about you experiment with this? try it on for size if not we can go into the back room and get you a new pair of shoes like it's like try this on see what works and then we'll we'll work it's that dialogue that you always talk about
2: yeah yeah and i mean the strategy i had when i was at outside and and found myself with less and less time to to devote to features i mean the deal i kind of had to make with myself was that short pieces i was going to be a copy editor for them. You know, I, I was going to try to like, especially like the online stuff, news stories, the smaller service pieces, like you want it to be a functional story. You don't want readers to be lost in it. Um, but
0: beyond the narrative, that, the narrative arc of this review of ski boots, I just, I don't know what's going on here.
2: Yeah, exa- exactly. You just, you just had to deal with that stuff as quickly as you can. You know, um, and then you try you try to carve out the space to still give those those features uh, sort of the attention that that they deserve and spend a little bit more time on them. And I think that's why I mean you hear book editors talk about this like they don't edit at work, you know they they edit at home or on the train or you know whatever works for them, but it's outside of normal business hours. And I I think for magazine editors today you probably have to think about doing stuff like that and there there are times even like with my you know much more relaxed publishing schedule where i'm still aware that like a day will be particularly busy with kind of admin type stuff and i need to wake up early to you know give a, an hour to the story or do it just before i go to bed Um, you know, just like finding, finding that little space to, to be able to edit the story when you're not thinking like, okay, I have a meeting in 15 minutes. I'm just going to get through like one section of this, you know, like that, that's where a story, the editing process starts to suffer a little bit.
0: And so now with Lily's piece that takes place in Ukraine during this, you know, the, 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 during this war, there's, uh, It's just it's a riveting piece and just it's just wild on its on its surface of just what these central figures are going through and bringing into this world. So talk a little bit about just what was so what struck you about this piece?
2: Yeah, I mean, this was this was a story that like as soon as it came, as soon as I read the pitch, I wanted to work on it. You know, it, it was just a really powerful human story um that that is set in this like incredibly important sort of like geopolitical moment they're setting and you know it's rare to to sort of have both of those things in a in a pitch that we get and so i i wanted to work on it yeah just right away and be involved in it because it it felt really important and really powerful and lily is just like a she's a knockout writer, you know, she's really good. She really cares. She's got a lot of experience in this part of the world and is really attentive to, to words and sentences and structure and all of that. So it, it was really, it was, it was a really good experience for me, you know, because I, I don't, I went from like working at outside to working at the atavist and, and so I edit you know what i think of as like kind of like normal features but i don't do a ton of uh like newsy features and certainly like very little war editing of any story about war or geopolitics so it you know there were there were things i learned from in the process you know like i i was sort of editing editing it for pace and trying to keep the story moving and, and one of the more frequent Notes Lily would send me was like, "Hey, I I want this paragraph in because it it shows how sort of disorienting the life is in the middle of of this conflict, and you know that's that's not something I necessarily always have to think about in in other stories, you know. So it was a good lesson for me, and like, okay." We can tell the story faster, but maybe it's it's good to slow down in certain moments and really let um, some of that like nuance and complexity really sink in for readers.
0: And what struck me about the the piece too that I wanted to ask you about is given that there are are young, there, there are babies that are brought into this conflict across uh, generations in and in, in, in family and borders. And, uh, you know, you're a dad of young kids, and I wanted to kind of get your sense of what the, how this piece resonated with you, given that you're the father of, you know, two young kids.
2: Yeah, it's heartbreaking, man. I mean, there, are, uh, there have been multiple times editing this story where I've just kind of like sat back and had a good like five second cry, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, because... Uh, you, you, I mean, this is the power of storytelling, right? You, you arouse empathy in, in the reader, and you get them to imagine. You want to tell it in such a vivid and descriptive way that you get them in that space. I don't think that's necessarily impossible for me to imagine quite what it's like to be in, in the situation they're in. But th- the glimpse of it that I can summon is terrifying, you know i I don't i'm in awe of sort of their their strength and, and sort of their resilience their ability to to still function and and love and and you know be devoted parents and children because you know i have a hard enough time when we have like a bunch of appointments and Mm -hmm. kind of a chaotic day, you know, I get all kinds of grumpy, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, but here, here are these families faced with much more catastrophic potential consequences, still finding a way to sort of, you know, to, to love each other. And that it's, it's really kind of heartbreaking and, and, and powerful.
0: Yeah, and what you said a moment ago about arousing empathy in in the reader, I think that's a really good way of uh, of not categorizing, but like as as a writer myself, sometimes I wonder like, what's the utility in probing into people's private lives and telling these mm-hmm. stories, which seems like for mainly the gain of the the writer and their own prestige and their own career, and like, it, doesn't it seem? I don't know, just. Uh, doesn't it doesn't seem rude to be probing yeah. in that way, but that's kind of what journalism and narrative journalism and stories of this nature do. They illuminate things. And uh, I think you said it very well in that, you know, when these stories are done well with the right degree of focus, they, they arouse empathy and shine lights into corners that otherwise might not get them. And maybe that's a way to get out of your own head when you feel like, oh, do, what business do I have to be probing into these people's lives?
2: Yeah, yeah, I I hear you. I mean, there there it's something I've wrestled with kind of throughout my journalistic career. Yeah. That you know, like yeah, it it's a little voyeuristic. It's it's um it sometimes feels exploitative. Um and you you try you know, you try if it's blatantly that uh, you know you should take a look at whether or not it's a story <laughs> you want to tell but but I hope and I think this story is a perfect example of this it you know they're like you were saying you, you tell it because it's going to help people understand something in a in a deeper and more profound way and and you hope that that results in like I don't know. Maybe it's too grand to say like a, a better citizenry, but but you know you you hope you're, that your readers are processing this and walking away changed in some, in the for the better in some way. Um, I think you've got to hope for that as a journalist, uh, otherwise you're, you're kind of, otherwise it is just exploited it. But, I, but I think when it's done well, and I, and I think Lily's story is an example of this, it's, it's more powerful because it is true, you know, because, because you're seeing, you're seeing the real, the real life consequences of a series of decisions or actions. Um, and that, you know, even, even in remarkable pieces of fiction, they don't have that. They have that same emotional power, but I feel like it's missing something that that true stories have still.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, as we, as we kind of like, you know, wind, wind down here, but, but about her piece, what I get, I get the sense too, and this doesn't happen too frequently, at least what I've read with, various his stories over the last few years, it's like it ends, but it doesn't feel like an ending, mm-hmm. it, you know, cause at the very, not to give too much away at the point, I always do a spoiler alert thing. It's just, but like, it ends with, you know, uh, uh, you know, with the, with the, the young man, like basically it enlisting and like, yeah. so it's going to go on. It carries on.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. This is one of those stories where like the ending, it's not, um, it's not tidy, you know, and and it and it can't be um, because of just kind of the the war is ongoing, (laughs) you know, these people's lives are ongoing. Um, But it's a lot of stories I edit. And, and I'm just kind of like, Oh, okay, you know, like, this is, this is a solid story. And this was one where, like, you know, you keep getting you keep reading news about Ukraine. And like, uh, this, this town, where uh much of the story takes place you know was bombed recently and while while we were uh in the production cycle for this story you know and it like the hotel where lily had stayed at was hit um you know and like i've worried about uh maxim and lara the the characters who were have moved to that town and it's it's you're right it's very much an ongoing story it's it's kind of like the end of a of a chapter, Um, but there, there's still, you know, these people are still in it. They're still living it. And um, which is a, maybe it gives the story more power. Maybe it makes it more important. I don't know, but it's, it certainly gives me kind of an uneasy feeling to know that it's, you know, we've just, we've just told one part of their story and they, they have this whole thing ahead of them.
0: Well, awesome, Jonah. This is this is great as always. So thanks for carving out the time to kind of tease out this piece and uh, dig into some of the nitty-gritty of what it means to be on your side of the table.
2: Yeah, my my pleasure. Always always really fun to catch up and and talk about stories.
0: All right. Now, Lily is practically and enviably, mind you, invisible online, like she's a ghost. The tag of her email is lilyhide.com, and that doesn't work. You type that in, and it says, this page isn't working. lilyhide.com is currently unable to handle this request, and I love her for it. But, like all of us, she has an antiquated LinkedIn page, gotcha, and it says, Author, journalist, editor, and researcher specializing in Ukraine and Crimea. She's worked in and written about the fields of human rights, public health, particularly HIV, AIDS, migration, and climate change. Her book, Dreamland, published by Walker in 2008, endorsed by Amnesty International, is the only existing novel about the return of the Crimean Tatars to their homeland in the 1990s. I like that she's a ghost. And I think I want to be a ghost, too. Here's Lily. Very nice. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I understand that, you know, you've actually, you've written a a couple novels. You know, one is Dreamland, you know, one girl struggle to to find her true home. And I, I, and I, I wonder where the inspiration for that came from
1: so dreamland uh it's actually it's a novel but it's very very closely based on real events and it's about the crimean tatars who are the indigenous people from crimea and um, their entire ethnic group was deported in 1944 on stalin's orders Um, the excuse was that they'd collaborated with the nazis on the german occupation and they were not allowed to return home for 50 years. They eventually came home when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and it's a, re- it's a retelling about a family that come back in the 1990s. So it tells a whole story of their deportation and what led up to that Second World War and about coming back. So this was just after Ukraine had become independent. So coming back to this completely new country and build- rebuilding their lives from scratch. And I was actually commissioned to write it. Publisher Walker, they were producing this series of novels which were endorsed by Amnesty International. So they had to have some kind of sort of human rights element. And I'd done quite a lot of journalism about this, the Crimean Tatars, and found it this really amazing story, which at that time really nobody knew about. And so when the editor at Walker suggested, if asked me if I would like to write something for this series, I was like, "Aha! Finally, I can uh, write about the Crimean Tatars." <laughs> so that's how that happened.
0: All right, nice. And do you find yourself more drawn to writing fiction or or nonfiction?
1: <laughs> Good question. That's something I'm really. Um really, really thinking about at the moment, as I think a lot of people are, um, a lot of writers, a lot of journalists, the world seems so hard to put into fiction in a way. I think we, we're very um, concerned with authenticity now, it seems to me, with who who is entitled to speak on a particular subject, um, whether we can trust that person, whether we can trust journalism, whether we can trust photography, And it seems to me, there's a kind of distrust of literature um, and whether it can really tell us anything or whether it's just irrelevant to real life or a kind of division between you read fiction to escape and you read non-fiction to engage with what's really happening. Um, it, It seems to me that these are kind of debates which are really very current at the moment. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a long digression, but, um, no,
0: no, I, I, I love that. And, you know, you bring up a, a really good point about like trusting journalism and trusting photography. And I was thinking about this just the, this past weekend, it was just on, on TV. And, uh, I think the new, uh, a, a new Google phone is touting that like, you know, it's just like you take a picture, and there's this one picture of a guy. He's he's throwing his baby up in the air, and you know, he's throwing it up like a foot in the air, like like you normally would. Uh, but in when they edit you know, on the commercial, they edit this picture and they put the baby like five feet in the air, and like and it looks natural, and like they're advertising like like look at this. You can just embellish this photograph, but it's a total fallacy. And it's like okay, well, that's something you can do in the palm of your hand but like what if that is in the hands of I don't know bad actors who want to fudge things or maybe clean things up in a way that scrubs out uh the reality of what's going on it's like it's pretty dangerous what's going out there and how do you trust anything that you're seeing anymore
1: yeah absolutely um well artificial intelligence as I think it's absolutely terrifying um from those terms i mean i think bad actors is one whole incredibly important issue but just generally the fact that actually anybody can manipulate anything now you learn the language of whichever ai um, system you're using and you can get it to draw whatever you want and it looks really convincing
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and it's it's just like all right uh you know, how do you how do you navigate that now? And and even in even in the writing that I'm doing and even, you know, let's just say, even in podcasting or whatever, it's like I, I start to think now, like, well, you know, if if I have to do it in such a way like if it sounds like AI could do it, then I have to push myself into not like more extreme, but I have to be like be as individualistic as possible. And I wonder if, you know, maybe you're starting to metabolize it in that way too. Like if AI could do this, then I need to push myself into more creative uh, liberties and even creative risks in the work you do.
1: Yeah. I was talking to uh, my brother about this. He's a um, composer. Um, uh, I was talking to him about this a couple of days ago. We, We were saying exactly this, that maybe people are going to, Start much more valuing things which are obviously homemade or obviously uh, individual, so less polished, more kind of like I don't know, punk zines or something. You know, yeah. we're going to turn our backs on, and especially in photography, uh, we're going to turn our backs on this really glossy, aesthetic um, kind of photography, which I think would is way overdue. I mean, when I look at war photography now, I hate it. It's there's this aesthetic of war photography, you know, this really saturated gray color. And it just makes everything look fake to me.
0: And on your uh, on your LinkedIn profile, you know, it says, you know, author, journalist, editor and researcher specializing in Ukraine, Crimea and the former Soviet Union. So I have to ask how you got involved in that uh, that area of study.
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I'm a bit horrified you looked at my LinkedIn profile because I haven't updated it for about the last five years.
0: You're very hard to find (laughs) online. Like, I I couldn't find much.
1: (laughs) No, no, I don't really like having an online presence. Um, (laughs) um, And yes, I would change that former Soviet Union for a start um, because I think these days to lump those countries together into something they were 30 years ago is um, not really correct. Uh, but I got into it completely by accident. I wanted to teach, live abroad and travel abroad. I went to the Czech Republic and got a job teaching English. And it just happened that my students were Ukrainians. And honestly speaking, I'd never even heard of Ukraine before. I and mean, this was in the 90s. So I guess I have kind of an excuse. And they got me interested in Ukraine. I was offered a job in Ukraine. And... Um, yeah, I got a job contract for I think it was for 6 weeks and um, <laughs> that was uh, 20 years ago. You
0: know, tell us how you arrived at, you know, the story and and uh, and found, you know, the people who are central to the story.
1: Um, I found them uh, it was sort of by accident. Um, so the family come from this village Uditkador which is very close to the Russian border in East Ukraine, um, which was occupied uh, when the war started in, in uh, when the Russian invasion started in uh, 2022, uh, and it was liberated in autumn. And at the end of last year, I was travelling with a um, a health project of mobile clinics. So the, these vans, which were going to frontline territories and liberated territories to bring healthcare to these places because you know, nothing was working, no hospitals, no clinics, no doctors, no pharmacies, nothing. Uh, so we were traveling to these villages with um, a small team of doctors and nurses and also bringing some humanitarian aid. Um, and I was just talking to people in this village, Ridka Um The morning we went, the the kindergarten had been bombed and hit and everybody was, um, yeah, somewhat upset about that. Uh, But they told me that there was not just one, but two newborn babies in this village where there was no electricity, no gas, no water, no nothing. And I was just, how? And then it turned out these two babies were in the same family, but two generations of the same family. (laughs) And then it turned out that, the younger couple with this baby had actually had to do this gigantic journey all the way through russia to get back and they'd come back like a week before i arrived um and i met Maxime, the young father on that first visit and yeah it just seemed to me such an amazing story and then i actually went back a few weeks later and met the family the rest of the family and then I had this story and was thinking, what on earth do I do with this? It's way too big for a, a you know, just a usual feature. Um, and so I sort of sat on it for a couple of months thinking, how on earth do I tell this and do it justice? Um, mm. And then, yeah, I started pitching it around and I'm really, really happy that Atavis took it because I really don't know where else I could have published such a, well, what seems to me such a big and complex story. And it was great to have the space to get into the whole sort of complications of what it's like living under occupation, how you can get out from this uh, situation, and and the, the sort of complexities of what what turned out to be the complexities in this family um, with the third baby uh, and the mother who um, um, who turned out to be. I don't want to say pre-Russian, but anyway, there was conflict within the family as well about what side they were on in the war.
0: And uh, trust is always hard to, it's always one of the central challenges for any any journalist, especially telling stories that are super intimate in nature. So for for you, how did you uh, ingratiate and earn the trust of your central figures?
1: Um, I mean, I think I was just really fortunate that there are, uh, They were very open to talking to me. I mean, the fact that I met met them in that village I think made a big difference. It's not a place where many journalists were going. And and I don't know, I just, I mean, I really, I hope that um, I really managed to build up a good relationship, especially with Lida, um, uh, one of the mothers. And uh, I don't know, maybe it, it helped that I've, lived in ukraine for a long time so you know maybe i have a good understanding of what life's like, life's like in ukraine maybe but yeah i think mostly i was just very fortunate i'm very grateful to them that they were willing to put up with my endless questions and <laughs> uh, meetings with them
0: yeah the the endless question thing is always is always the challenge when I, when i'm talking to people just about the innocuous things that i write about it's like it's just eventually they. You, you, I can almost feel their eyes glazing over. And, you know, oftentimes, I'm talking on the phone, it's just like I'm. I'm sorry. The, these questions sound really inane, but like they really help with building detail. Uh, but you know, I I'm like I applaud your patience. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I was also really lucky with this family that they're they're so. Um the way they retell their story is so vivid and so detailed, actually, a lot of the time without me having to ask, um, I mean, I usually try not to direct an interview, I prefer to let people talk and tell me what they want to tell me. Yeah. Um, and that way, a lot of things come up, which I would never even thought about to ask. And, you know, it's, I don't like having a preconceived idea of what the story is it's up to them. It's their story, it's not mine yeah they really had such a vivid way of retelling it and it's actually one of the things i regret about the way i wrote it in the end is that i didn't put very many direct quotes in from the three main main people um and i i did that on purpose because i felt like you know when you're always kind of pulling the reader back as in this person told it to me the journalist you know and there's also quite a lot of dialogue in the story, which is reported from what they told me, but with other people. Um, does that make sense? <laughs>
0: it does. Uh, but yeah. uh, but why why do you regret uh, not putting things in in quotes as much?
1: Because I feel like their voices were lost a bit. Because you know, the mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the way they they told their own story was so vivid, and I think maybe that a bit of that was lost in the final telling and maybe it was the wrong decision to decide not to put in more direct quotes
0: i read beautifully and i know jonah said it was just like a a joy to read it because it was written written so well and i i I think a conversation you guys might have had where i think it might have been about quotes and you're like well almost just about everything is quoted from them it's just not in quotations it's just you know you almost kind of channeled it for them you know in, in this piece if, if I'm understanding that right
1: yeah we did have that conversation and it's certainly what I was trying to do um, yeah but sometimes I wonder if I kind of ironed it out or it ended up getting ironed out a bit too much. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm never happy with what I write. So (laughs) (laughs) I would have, yeah, there would definitely be something I didn't like about and thought I'd done wrong. And that's the main thing that I think maybe I did wrong.
0: Uh, Yeah. How do you you work through that, not being happy with what you write? Uh, That's something that I think a lot of us wrestle with. And I wanted to just, uh, uh, you know, for you, it's just how do you, get it done when you know you're going to be infinitely displeased by everything you put down.
1: Yeah, I think pretty much all writers suffer from it. (laughs) Good question. Um, I don't know. Put it aside and move on to the next thing and accept that (laughs) you're never going to be completely happy. Um, You know, a piece like this, you're working with an editor as well, and so you've always got a second opinion, which helps
0: yeah Uh, Uh, can you can you ever go back and read something of your your past work
1: yes uh i mean if a long enough period has gone by i quite often go if i go back i'm often quite pleasantly surprised about actually how it's not that bad like um (laughs) like the book dreamland i actually wrote that more than 10 years ago and i went back to it quite recently because there was something, there's something in there that I want to refer to in my new book. And um, I was reading it, I was like, actually, this, this, this is actually quite good. <laughs> so that was that was nice. Uh,
0: the ending to me struck me as, like it wasn't as clear cut, because it's very clear that the story continues, you know, for Maxine uh you know just as you wrestled with the ending you know what were you know you thinking as you were constructing this ending
1: i've been working on it over six months so when i first met them as i told you um they'd only just arrived home after this gigantic journey and um i actually thought the end would be um when they got the birth certificate for the baby for david um which seemed to me sort of an ending for him, you know, they'd, they'd made sure that he was going to live in Ukraine, and then they made sure that he was a Ukrainian citizen. And then um, zhenya died, uh, Yerien, the, the volunteer who'd helped both me and uh, Maxim and his family. And I met Maxim at his funeral, and I thought, okay, maybe that's the end. Uh, and then it was just, the, yeah, as, as I wrote the final interview when I met um, Maxim and the family and he told me that he was going to join the army and, and I was like, okay, <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I guess that, I mean, as you said, I very much hope it's not the end. Uh, in a way it is, yeah, a whole new chapter. But that seemed to me the place to stop because it sort of makes so much sense. Okay, why do people go to fight? Um there's still a war going on. In a way this story is much happier than a lot of stories from Ukraine now because everybody, well pretty much everybody stays alive. Uh, But there is still a war going on, there is still occupation and invasion and so for someone to choose to go and fight is sort of inevitable.
0: Yeah, and in talking with Jonah, he he mentioned of this, you know, this one sentence towards the end where where you write, you know, he was going to protect his family even if that meant he had to leave them. And I think there was something of a dialogue between the two of you about how you were going to phrase that sentence and everything. So maybe you can kind of talk about that a little.
1: Yes, we um really we did have a lot of discussion about that sentence. And Jonah's objection to that sentence was. Uh, that, of course, nobody can know what's going to happen, Um, and going away to fight in the army, you you can do it for that reason, because you want to protect your country, you want to protect your family, but what's actually going to happen is unpredictable, which I totally take his point, Uh, but I wanted something much stronger than that. It's not a decision that anybody takes lightly. And I wanted to make it clear how much determination has to go into this decision. So to say you're going to do something is much stronger than saying you know you want to do something. Uh, But also for me it does actually have two meanings. Say he's going to protect his family. You can read it as in he's going to because like as in he absolutely intends to. But it also implies in itself is going away. He's going away to protect his family. You know there is this horrible irony as well that um, in choosing to protect his family, he's actually going to be leaving them.
0: Yeah, there's one sentence uh, where you write, you know, uh, when there's a long deafening roar outside that makes the windows tremble or a series of more distant thumps, I'm the only one who flinches. And I I love that in a sense because it just shows how accustomed some people are to just the normality of, shit bombs go, <laughs> bombs blowing up nearby or very close uh very close or far away and it's just like you know even though you've been there for a, a while, for several years you know it's still you you still flinch but they're just they they don't you're the one who flinches and they don't
1: yeah it's um it's just terrible what human beings can get used to it's uh It's like the only way people can survive without going crazy, but it's also just absolutely terrible. I mean, another big discussion we had with Jonah about the end was um, this question about why Maxime and Lyra came back with the baby, why they didn't stay in Europe. Um, It's also a part at the end where I asked them. And the way I'd originally written it, I'd put it more in as in, I think the reason why they came back. And then we actually changed that in the end. But this question of what people can get used to and why they can continue living in these these situations, um, it's something which, as a journalist here, you just can't get away from. You go to these frontline villages where, yeah, there's nothing, no gas, no water. Uh, shelling every day no work Um, why are people still there and I've just realised it's after years of going to these places that it's a completely pointless question I mean you just get an answer like somebody has to feed the pigs or you know uh, (laughs) (laughs) where else would I go nobody wants me becomes almost an insult I think to even ask people but this is There's all sorts of different reasons for it. But partly, I think it is, of course, that people just get used to (laughs) Get used to what's happening. And you could say that about the country, that Ukraine has now pretty much got used to the fact that there's a war going on and nobody knows when it's going to end. And the world, you know, everybody was interested in Ukraine for a while and now they're all looking at Israel and Palestine and soon it's going to be the next war somewhere else. And it just, we just get used to it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, as someone who is right, you know, I mean you are there on on the ground, you know, in the in these villages and you know what dismays you when you look outward at say maybe the more mainstream coverage of what you might read versus what you're experiencing and what the people around you are experiencing like, you know, day to day.
1: I mean, what really dismays me now is how Everybody's forgotten about Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I understand that it's, it's inevitable, but it's still, yeah, it's dismaying because Ukraine needs international support in this war. And if it loses it, then um, it's going to be a disaster. Uh, but in general, I think media coverage of, has, been, has been good of Ukraine. It's been really good. Um, since the invasion started before then not so much um i mean this war started in 2014 and i know that journalists who are based here uh, including myself we feel like we've just been fighting this battle since 2014 to get the world to notice that there is actually a war going on that um Crimea was annexed and occupied, that East Ukraine was uh, occupied, it wasn't a civil war, it was Russia, um, and so in a way, it's, it, it was sort of huge relief that the rest of the world woke up to this fact, at least in 2022.
0: Yeah. What are the, the nature of the conversations you have with fellow foreign correspondents uh, there in Ukraine?
1: <laughs> well, we don't have many conversations these days because we're all so busy, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: mm, well, yeah, I'd say yeah. The relief that that now people know what we're talking about. We don't have to explain every time where Donbass is, what where Crimea is, who the Crimean Tatars are, um, or whatever. But there's definitely a lot of dismay, I would say, at the moment, at just seeing this attention completely switch somewhere else. And, uh, I mean, we used to... The, the the war in East Ukraine, it started being called Europe's Forgotten War and around 2016, that became the way to describe it, you know. And um, I just noticed a... Uh, Another journalist who's based here, he did a story a couple of days ago and he had to introduce it as something like the war the rest of the world is forgetting about. I mean, he hated it, but it was like, That's... there's always has to be a phrase, you know, to describe something. And...
0: Mm mm-hmm. I think what's good about your, your story also is that it coming out, you know, now it kind of refreshes, it kind of refreshes the leaves so to speak, that this conflict or this war is very much ongoing and, you know, you're really, you know, you're showing what it's like for, uh, for the people that are just living through it. You know, it's a story that really illustrates the, you know, the, just that, that day to day, but also, you know, it's, this crazy thing about the birth of these babies which is you know insane on top of that but you're really showing the what it's like to live live in it and I think that'll I think that'll really resonate I I don't know I imagine that was part of your goal too is just like here's you know the the, you know this family being put through this crucible
1: yes it was yeah thank you I'm glad um, I'm glad that that came across I was yeah I just really wanted to Yeah, to not just sort of tell the bare bones of invasion, occupation, liberation, but to convey what it's really like to live through all of this and all the sort of surreal stuff about how normal life carries on at the same time. You still dig your garden, you still um, try and talk to your family on the phone. in the midst of all this horror, you know, people still get pregnant, people still have babies. And yeah, I really wanted to get that across. So glad that worked. It,
0: as a, as a journalist, uh, I, and I was talking to Jonah about this, and I talked to this uh, sometimes with other people too, about doing really intimate stories of this nature, you know, at times it can feel, and this is just maybe me, and maybe you can speak to this, like, Sometimes telling these these stories can feel sometimes exploitative of, of people, and you know, for the benefit of the of, of the writer, the prestige of the writer, and and that's always something I'm I'm thinking about. Like, do, what right do I have to do this? Maybe I should just write fiction and just don't, <laughs> and just kind of like not uh, not tread uh, tread on people's stories. And I wonder if just if for you doing doing non fiction and stories like this if that if you ever wrestle with those kind of you know feelings
1: absolutely yes um all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. um yes, I always try to make it clear clear that that people understand that I'm a journalist and i'm i i want to write this story um and i try to as i said before not to force a shape on the story um to let the people tell me what they want to tell me um and i, I very very much hope that i didn't traumatize them too much in in sort of asking asking them to, to go through the very difficult things that happen to them but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an issue for sure.
0: Yeah, because when you're thinking about it, it's like you know, and in reading, uh, you know, true crime or or anything, or just a harrowing story, and you realize that you know, as the writer, when you're able to uh, metabolize that information and then you know, use those devices of, I don't know, of things to keep people reading, which is you know, the, some cliffhangery type things, a little bit of suspense. And you realize you're using these literary devices overlaid over like real people's trauma and real people's experiences. I'm like, oh my god, I feel kind of, feel really icky, you know, trying to like, yeah, I don't know, tell the story in a way that is that once that makes the reader want to keep scrolling or turn the page. But I'm like, at the end, I'm like, oh, this is still real, real people, and I'm I feel like I'm using them, and I I, I don't know, uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah,
1: I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I think it, it, some of that goes back to that question you asked about whether it's fiction or non-fiction. In a way, fiction feels more ethical, but in a way it feels even less ethical when you're writing fiction about real events. Uh, because then you're really like employing all of these devices, you know, to talk about some war or Holocaust or whatever. There's this... Uh, I've been reading uh, Czesław a Polish writer and poet, and he writes something about this, um, about how it's yeah it's it's immoral to write fiction about something like well he's talking specifically about uh, the occupation of Warsaw um, because you're trying to make something beautiful and formed and like artificial out of such horrific events in a way like to have something which is badly written but true is a more ethical approach but on the other hand would anybody read it if it was badly written so <laughs> i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah god damn L- lily why do we do this
1: <laughs> well because <laughs> it's interesting and it's uh i don't know <laughs> i mean when i was young and naive and went into journalism i had this strange idea that it would you know change the world which um clearly isn't true (laughs) but i think you do get seized by a story right you get you get seized by something which feels to you so amazing and actually important that it's i mean like this family the story story of the family from the Atavist story. Um, before I even knew that I was going to try and write it up somewhere, I just told everybody about it because I just thought it was such an amazing story. And that's what people do, right? Even if they're not writers, they still tell stories all the time. They tell each other stories.
0: Well, I, Lily, I want to be mindful of your time. You're at the end of your day. I'm at the start of mine. So I want to let you be able to power down as best you can. Uh, as I like to bring these conversations down for a landing, I always ask the guest for a recommendation of some kind. And that can just be anything for the listeners out there, you know, something that you're excited about that you think that maybe you can uh, enrich someone's life with something uh, that you're enjoying, be it a, be it a book or a, a brand of socks or a brand of coffee. It's uh, totally up to you, Lily.
1: Well, I, I mentioned I've been reading Cheslav Milosz and I would really recommend this book, The Captive Mind, which is, it's about writers and uh, totalitarianism, specifically it's about writers living under the Soviet um, regime in Poland after World War II. Uh, but it's where the comment I mentioned comes from, the one about whether it's not immoral to write fiction. Um, about horrific historical events. But uh, I've, I've, I'm finding it really fascinating and also a real kind of lesson in how to write narrative nonfiction, some of it. Um, so I would really, really recommend The Captive Mind, Cheslav Miosh.
0: Fantastic. Well, Lily, I'm so glad that you... It went down the writer path, became a journalist, and so we could write, uh, read, uh, you know, the amazing stuff you're coming up with, uh, especially with this uh, this piece that you did for the Adavis. It's an incredible piece. So I uh, just thank you so much for the work you're doing and for coming on the pod.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It was great to talk.
0: All right, thank you very much, CNFers, for making it this far. Thank you to Jonah and Lily for the time. I don't have a parting shot today because, like, who cares, really? It doesn't matter. Nothing I say matters. We're all just molecules, man. You know, my goal for heading into this week was to be more positive because I have a tendency to shoot myself in the foot and be my own worst enemy. And it made me more negative. Then I thought about this moment in the last dance on Michael Jordan... Where someone brings up something uh, like a negative thing, and he's like, "Why? Why focus on that? Why focus on that? Let's focus on the positive." And I'm like, "How do you do that when life is meaningless and we're all going to die anyway?" So stay wild, CNFers, and if you can't do interview, see ya.